I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is the story of a woman whose work in the criminal justice system has shined the spotlight on wrongful convictions in the United States. And while her work has enlightened us all, the case that inspired her efforts is one that just might haunt us. This is episode 21 the Kathleen Zellner story. Hey, Amy, good to see you today. Hi, Megan. Miss you. I miss you, too. And I can't wait till we're recording again together. I know. Let's give some shout outs. Are you ready? My favorite part. Let's do it. I know. I love this, too. Okay. First is Andrina from Switzerland. Thank you, Andrina. Andrina actually helped us with some social media stuff. She, like, volunteered her time and made us even, like, a little document. And I just... And she didn't make us feel old when we had no clue about half of the (laughs) stuff she was talking about. I felt old anyway, but love you, Andrina. Thank you so much. We have Bailey from Illinois, and she came from listening from True Crime Obsessed, heard about us, and then came over. Oh, thanks, Bailey. And Bailey has a question for us. How often do you think the backlog of DNA testing keeps victims from justice and perpetrators from being charged, men and women? And what can we do to help end the backlog? I love that question. The the answer to the first part is a strong yes. So I think the number one thing we could do is ask Congress to prioritize funding. So I've read some reports that say there's over 100,000 rape kits that are currently sitting untested. So that means 100,000 victims who have not received justice. That also means potentially 100,000 rapists who have not been apprehended. 
And just as bad, it could also very well mean that people that are wrongfully convicted, that are wrongfully charged of rapes, that these rape kits could possibly exonerate. Did you know something interesting, Megan, that some labs consider backlog after a sample is not tested for only 90 days? I had no idea. Even more surprising is NIJ considers it a backlog after only 30 days. So it is interesting to think about when does a sample become considered backlog versus, you know, a current sample. I think it's all about just prioritizing funding. Yeah, I think one of the things that happened was that they were collecting DNA for a long time, but didn't have the technology. All of a sudden, there's the technology, but then there's all these untested kits already. So then where do you start? And so I think the backlog was a a function of that and began from the beginning. And now we just need more DNA technicians, more money. It really is a a funding issue. And unfortunately, it's not always easy to get funding. No, it's not. But we hope... uh, We hope that there is funding for this issue. It's really, really important. I think we're going to see um, that happen. Thank you for your question, Bailey. I hope that answers it. Next, we have Brooke from Flagstaff, Arizona. And Brooke actually wrote to us suggesting that we visit Sedona and Flagstaff, saying how pretty they are on our trip that we're taking this summer. When you say our trip, you don't mean me and you, sadly. (laughs) You mean you and James? (laughs) I do. Amy, you've been to Sedona, right? Yes, I was actually born in Arizona. Fun fact, Sedona is breathtakingly beautiful. You need to go there. Okay, thank you so much for the recommendation. And now we have a friend that we can visit when we go. I was going to say that. I keep (laughs) saying that like, oh, so we'll see you there. Everyone's going to be like, oh, my God, these girls are really going to look us up. now." Um, Thanks for the suggestion, Brooke. We have Cindy from Utah. Ironically, Cindy, we might also be taking a road trip out there. And when I say we, I mean me and James. Sorry, not me and Amy. Um, We have Cassie from Columbia, Missouri. Question. She is curious what we think about the Lori Vallow case. Oh, oh, (laughs) I mean, I've been on this for a while. I actually wrote back to Cassie, but um, let me just also say that I think it's too soon to say what the cause of death is for the kids. Um, And I'm talking about for Tylee and JJ. I read something that it said they died a gruesome death. As I read it, I realized they still didn't know how. It was way too premature. They should not be publishing anything like that. I I mean, we hope they didn't suffer. Like, it's like now that we know, we just have to hope that it was as painless and as quick as possible. In terms of Lori Vallow, I don't know about her mental state, and I would need to know more about it. What I've read is that she believed her kids were zombies and other people were zombies and they had dark souls and they're... She had to do something to eradicate it. I know that she was very heavily influenced by Chad Daybell's teachings. And two things I said, when she goes like the legal strategy, I'm going to assume that either they're going to try to pin it on her brother who is gone, or they're going to try to plead an insanity defense. And I would love to cover this case when we get a little more information. As you mentioned, it's so early on, so it's really hard to speculate. And I think it's problematic when people speculate before having all the facts anyway. Right. Yeah. So we will actually come back to this when we have more information. Thank you for your support. We have McKenna from Los Angeles. Yay. I love your name, McKenna. Her sister and her mom also listen to the podcast. Oh, that's like a family thing. That's sweet. I know. I know. We have Sarah Lucozzi. And Sarah is actually a direct appeal listener as well. Sarah, what do you think? Innocent or guilty? We need to know. And finally, we have Tamara Hawthorne from Queensland, Australia. Oh, how amazing. Thank you, Tamara. Australia is beautiful. I had the honor of going there, Megan, two years ago. And I have to say it is one of the most beautiful places I've ever visited. I remember. Do you remember I could have gone as well, but I was afraid to get on the plane and go that far? (laughs) 
Yes, you're a baby. I you know. missed out on a I'm good a- trip. I held a koala and a kangaroo. Let me say Tamara actually also has a whole squad of listeners as well. So thank you. And let me also say that uh, we're reading Tamara's name this time and not last week because James forgot her on the last list. <gasps> You're fired, James. Fired. Sorry, Tamara. <laughs> hope uh, hope we uh, don't forget you in the future. We'll blame it on James, though. Yes. And that's it. Thank you so much, everyone. Thanks for writing us again. Love the questions. And we really like the engagement. So... Today's case is one I am super excited about and is so excited to talk to Amy about. So based on my description, do you know who I'm covering today, Amy? Uh, I'm going to have to say Kathleen Zellner. Ding, ding. You got it. It is Kathleen Zellner. Many of you might know her from Making of a Murderer, part two. She is Stephen Avery's lawyer. And we are going to actually get to a couple of her cases and updates on the Stephen Avery case. But I want to begin by giving you a look at Kathleen's background and what led her down this path to become the lead wrongful conviction attorney, I would say, or lead uh, wrongful conviction exoneration attorney in the United States, because to date, Kathleen has 19 exonerees to her name, which is just an incredible feat. Kathleen was born on May 7th, 1957 to Winifred and Owen Daniel Thomas. She was raised by her parents in Midland, Texas, along with her seven siblings, until such time when they moved to Bartlesville, Oklahoma. From a young age, Kathleen envisioned herself working for the FBI or as an investigative journalist. And I'd just like to say, Amy, side note, that I wanted to work as a criminal lawyer or like an investigator as well since I've been about seven or eight. So I totally related to that. Kathleen also learned martial arts at a young age, and she was the type of kid, and this will come probably as no surprise, who didn't tolerate bullying either for herself or people around her. Kathleen originally attended Marquette University in Wisconsin with aspirations of becoming a history professor, but the school was not for her, and after one semester, she transferred to the University of Missouri, where she met her husband, Robert Zellner, with whom she has one daughter. Her name is Anne, and Anne is also a practicing attorney. Robert and Kathleen would go on to live in Montreal briefly, which is really where Kathleen finished her bachelor degree in Montreal. It was reportedly Robert who recognized that Kathleen's strong will would serve her well in the legal field. And with his support and really his urging, Kathleen attended Northern Illinois Law School. Kathleen worked for other firms for a bit, but she actually opened her own firm specializing in medical malpractice in 1990, also handling prisoner abuse cases and wrongful conviction cases. And while we all know her for these famous cases, let's hear how she got to where she is today, because I'm not sure if anyone knows the case that led her to only want to defend truly innocent people. Do you know this case or no? I don't know. Maybe once you say it, but I don't know who you're alluding to. Okay. This is the case that I did not know her for either. And I found so interesting and I fell down a rabbit hole on this one. And this is the Larry Eiler case. Nope. No, I see Amy's. I'm still blank on that one. So <laughs> now it sounds vaguely familiar, but I definitely don't know. Okay. Shortly after Zellner opened that practice in 1990, an anti-death penalty organization asked her to take on the appeal of Larry Eiler, convicted of murdering and dismembering a 15-year-old boy. Eiler was a young, attractive house painter in the 1970s and 80s, living in Indiana. 
He had a very troubled childhood, though, filled with alcoholism and abuse by his parents and several stepfathers. Eiler also struggled with his sexuality, and he had feelings of self-loathing because he was gay, and it was said that Eiler would kill young gay men after sexual encounters because this inner conflict that he had. Now, I just told you that he was convicted of dismembering and killing a boy, and then I'm saying now there are multiple victims here, so keep that in mind. Eiler lived with Robert David Little. He was an older professor who worked at Indiana State University, but this was a platonic relationship um, because Eiler was also, he was younger, he was attractive, Little was a little, a little bit older and not so attractive. It was just a platonic living situation. But Eiler also was involved with a married man, a man who was married to a woman, and this was actually a serious relationship. And the wife knew about it and apparently was tolerant of this relationship. Eiler was back and forth between them. But when he was with Little, Little paid the bills. And supposedly it was so that Eiler was the young, handsome guy who would kind of bring home young, handsome men for Little to engage with as well because he was also gay. So I think that he was kind of, you know, the one who was able to get other people yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't a great picture from the start of their arrangement, but dubbed the highway killer, Eiler killed an estimated 20 to 23 young men, many of whom were found near highways. He disposed of their bodies on the side of highways. Robert David Little was also charged with murder as an accomplice in at least one of these murders, but he was acquitted of all the charges and returned to his university position. When Zellner came onto the case, it was at the part where Isla was in his appeals, and she worked hard to broker a deal with prosecutors. And at first, Isla's family, I mean, they I looked at the footage and they were, you know, they defended him and said that he, he couldn't have done this and whatnot. But Eiler actually confessed to Kathleen that he had committed uh, a number of these murders. And he said that he would reveal the names of his other victims if they would take the death penalty off the table because he had been sentenced to death for that one murder. So Kathleen Zellner went and started brokering these deals. And it had to happen with different prosecutors because there were actually many jurisdictions. It wasn't just in Indiana. It was a couple of Midwestern states where the bodies were found. So she went to work and she got most of the prosecutors to agree, but there was one who really wouldn't. And the deal ultimately fell through and Eiler would die of AIDS related complications in prison in 1994. But what happened after that was also very unique. So one year after his death, Kathleen Zellner held a press conference in which she revealed the names of Eiler's other victims. She said that Eiler maintained the whole time that Robert David Little, the professor he lived with, was absolutely an accomplice in several of the murders. Also, even the ones he was not, he still knew about them. And Eiler maintained that Little actually committed one of the murders himself. And Zellner revealed this information as well at the press conference. How was she allowed to do that? Isn't there like attorney-client privilege? Right. So I'm glad you asked that because that's exactly what I thought. He gave her permission to do so. So he... When he died, he said, when I die, you could do that. Yes. He said when he died. I guess she had said it was like the only redeeming act he thought he could give was to at least give the families, 
their you know their their remains and and what happened to their loved ones so that's why she was allowed to at that time Kathleen Zellner vowed that she would never work again for someone she thought was guilty that she would only work to defend the innocent you know it's interesting I teach I teach serial killers and I actually didn't know Larry Eiler so I fell down such a rabbit hole with this one I'm looking at everything and especially the connection with the, the professor and he stood trial and he was acquitted. And, you know, it's funny because when you started talking about him, I just assumed it was going to be a wrongful conviction case. And then when you said he killed 20 something people, I'm like, how do you get wrongfully convicted of being a serial killer? <laughs> That's actually so, really interesting. Although, you know what? I'm like, side note, the Atlanta monster. Remember, he, they, they say yeah. he's a wrongful conviction. So it's which true. I don't know. But anyway. OK, so. Kathleen's, uh, you know, got a thriving practice. A few years after the Eiler case, Zellner took on a wrongful conviction case for Joseph Burroughs. Have you ever heard his name? I do, but I don't remember the case. Burroughs was awaiting execution for the murder of an 88-year-old retired farmer named William Doolin in an attempted robbery. What happened here, too? So how did they know this was an attempted robbery of this 88-year-old? Well, these two other characters that come into play, Chuck Guillon and Gail Potter, who is going to play a very integral role in this case, attempted to cash a $4,000 check of William Dulon's. um, But the bank employee, this being like a small town, recognized immediately that this wasn't the guy. This wasn't the old farmer. So they called the police because they knew William Dulan well. Authorities knew Gail Potter as a local cocaine dealer who had been arrested previously. She'd been arrested for drug dealing. She was a drug dealer. That day, when authorities, you know, went to talk to her, she had visible cuts and bruises on her. You know, the cops bring her in and they're grilling her, essentially, interrogating her, but scaring her so much so that she falsely implicates Joseph Burroughs who she said was a collector of drug debt money. So basically, this was a short thing that happened. The cops are like, tell us who did it. We know that you're involved in this somehow. But the cops didn't think because she's a woman, and I, I love that we look at this through ginger lens, that she's capable of this crime, right? So they pressure her, and she very quickly turns over Burroughs' name. So who is Burroughs? He's a guy who's got a history of offenses also, though none of them are violent, but he was like a very big, burly looking guy. And he kind of fit the bill. Like if you look at the pictures of him, and I always encourage people to go ahead and look, he's big and he looks tough. And I think coupled with his record, the police are seeing the most logical suspect to them. Like he looks like what a murderer is going to look like. So he's arrested and they have another witness, Ralph Fry. But it became obvious later that Ralph Fry, his testimony and his statement was absolutely riddled with inaccuracies. But he also pointed to Burroughs as the killer. Fry and Potter, so this is Ralph Fry's the second witness and Gail Potter, their stories didn't match either. I have to tell you, the list goes on and on with the inaccuracies and the problem in this death penalty case. Enter Kathleen Zellner. She took on the case, but she took it on kind of reluctantly. Um, I believe she still kind of had a bad taste in her mouth from what happened with the Eiler case. Most people had focused on Ralph Fry's testimony and trying to work with that, like where the problems were with Fry's testimony. But Zellner actually was really smart. She skillfully worked the prosecution's star witness, Gail Potter, the woman. 
So Zellner started visiting Gail Potter in prison and just asking her questions. And, you know, I think she, I don't think she thought Potter was going to keep meeting with her or whatnot or keep talking to her. Um, She definitely describes Potter as having antisocial characteristics for sure. But Potter kept meeting with her and she kept listening to Kathleen. And during one of these meetings, Zellner actually said to her, you know, I think it was a woman who shot William Doolan. And Potter really admired Zellner, too. She came to admire her. And her response was, you're right. A woman did do it. I shot Bill Doolan. So she actually admitted to Kathleen Zellner that she was the real perpetrator of the crime. Yeah. And soon is after. she cutting a deal? Is she trying to no, cut a deal? No, at this point, Zellner is Burroughs' attorney. She can't offer her anything. Um, she's She's advocating for her client. But what would happen was that not only did she admit it, but Zellner skillfully got her to commit to, and she confessed this on the stand later on. And what happened? Burroughs was released in 1994. He was considered a wrongful conviction. I'm unclear as to why this happened, but maybe it was because it was early. Apparently, he was in like a multi-million dollar lawsuit, but then settled for $100,000 for his wrongful conviction. Amy, you probably know. That happens a lot. Yeah, yeah. Because a lot of times, you know, when you are going to file a suit, you're going to go big. And then it's like a negotiations. You go back and forth till you settle on something. You'll see a lot of times they start in the millions and they end up in a couple hundred thousand. Okay. I know. I guess there's bigger settlements now, too, I'm assuming, because it was 1994. And this was like really pre-wrongful conviction compensation. And it sounds like it wasn't a DNA exoneration, which is why it's probably not as famous. Yeah. Okay. You know, she was really hailed for her skills in getting, I mean, getting someone to confess to the murder. Oh, interestingly, what happened to Gail Potter? I know we say interestingly all the time, though, but I was like really curious, like, okay, so this woman goes on the stand and admits like, when's she going to be tried with murder, right? Nope. They, or perjury she, at the very least for the first time. Very smart, Amy. That's right. She wound up serving five years for perjury or sentenced to five years for perjury. But that. But they never bothered going after her for the murder? Nope. And that happens, though, also. We know in wrongful conviction cases when the prosecutor and law enforcement, they don't believe it's a, uh, even with her admitting it. They might still believe, no, she just said that um, she feels bad or you know what I mean? So Gail Potter didn't really wind up doing much time at all. But Kathleen Zellner really showed, you know, how incredibly smart she was. So Kathleen Zellner has gone on to represent a number of other people. But I would want to talk about two more cases, the ones that maybe people um, know about. So the first one, another notable case of Kathleen's is the Ryan Ferguson case. I believe, Amy, you know this one quite well. So if I get anything wrong here, I'm going to need you to step in and just correct me, okay? Sure. I met Ryan a couple of times at the Innocence Network conference. He's a very nice guy. That's right. Does he attend all regularly? Yep. And is he usually a featured speaker there? Um, sometimes. Sometimes he's just there. A lot of exonerees just go to, you know, for the camaraderie. And also they attend different sessions with other exonerees. And, right. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about Ryan Ferguson for people who don't know him. At age 17, Ryan Ferguson was arrested for the murder of sports editor Kent Heitholds, a man that Ryan didn't know. Kent had been beaten to death in the parking lot behind where he worked, and an eyewitness reported seeing two college-age kids outside near Kent's car. That night, Ryan and his friend, Charles Erickson, were in the area attending Halloween parties. Erickson had apparently a lot of drugs in his system, so he'd done a couple different types of drugs. And he subsequently became convinced that he was somehow involved in the murder. So he turned himself into the police 
claiming that he had dreamlike visions of what he and Ryan had done. Ryan, when they pulled him in, did talk to the police, but he absolutely maintained his innocence from the beginning. He said, absolutely not. I was not involved. I know nothing about this. Erickson actually had no memory of the evening either, but by trial time, he had a story about him and Ryan for which he was offered a deal. His story was obviously kind of convincing at trial. A janitor also positively identified Ryan as being in the parking lot. So you have an eyewitness identification here and you have Ryan's friend saying, yes, we did this together, a confession and an eyewitness identification, which are two of the reasons why most wrongful convictions happen, right? Um, So again, Ryan's a trial. He maintained his innocence, but he was convicted of the murder and sentenced to 40 years in prison, despite there being no physical evidence whatsoever to tie him to the crime. Later, both Erickson and the janitor recanted, saying that they had both lied due to police coercion. So Erickson was confused, I think. You know, he was kind of convinced as to a story and locked into a story that he would tell. But the janitor, why would he lie, right? That was what I wondered. So do you know this? It was something about him. There was like a picture of the boys in the newspaper after they were already arrested. That, that may have been the case, but the reason why he lied and why he was so easily coerced is because he said that he felt scared by the police because he was yeah. actually a registered sex offender. Mm-hmm. And so he was like terrified of the police. And, you know, I'm sure it was a biased account or mm-hmm. so he felt that kind of pressure. So they both took the stand later. They both said that they lied. Ferguson was released and exonerated after serving nine years in prison, maybe closer to 10, as I understand it. But I, I also, um, when I was reading some of the articles, saw that he wound up staying. They didn't release him right away. So after the testimony of these two, they got on the stand and they recanted. Zellner said she thought Ferguson would be released pretty quickly because that's usually the way that would work. But I think he was still in prison for another year or so. I think it took really quite some time. But he was exonerated and Netflix released a documentary Dream Killer about the case, in, if you want to watch it, in which Zellner is also featured. And Ryan Ferguson goes down as one of her one of her exonerations. Amy, you want to add anything to that? I'm not sure I missed anything. You did a good a good summary there. But thank you. um, Just something that shows Ryan's character is even though Erickson implicated him, he's actually fighting for because Erickson is in prison serving 25 years right right now. Actually, I think it's for lying under oath. But either way, Ryan is trying to get him out even though he screwed him so bad. I did not know that. So I saw that Erickson, he got 25 years in the plea deal. That was the original plea deal in which he said, because he said he committed the murder too. He said that they did it together. So Mm -hmm. I had no idea that Ferguson was trying to help get him out too. So although he did the plea deal for 25, I think even if, if Ryan is exonerated based on the fact that this crime didn't occur that way, then that would also mean that Erickson probably is innocent as well, right? So they really, in fact, can only hold him then on lying under oath. I would think the same thing, too, if the, if he's exonerated. Although, no, if you think about it this way, they could say, like, Erickson committed the crime. So. Yeah, Ferguson is exonerated and Erickson dragged him into but, this yeah. mess. I think Ferguson, he knows he was with Erickson. So I think that's why he's so adamant on helping him because he feels bad for this kid. He's like, this kid's clearly all screwed up because he didn't do it. I was with him that night. Right. I think you're right, though. I think that really indicates his character. I've also seen him speak. I've not met him like you have, but I've watched him. And I mean, he really seems like he just seems like such solid character. And, and his yeah, family I, and, you know, he just seems like he seems like a good person. Yeah, I was going to say his family is often at those conferences as well. And they're a really amazing group of people. And they really advocated for him and stood by him. And 
He had a great team. He was, he was one of the lucky ones. He had a great team of people. And one of the lucky ones who had Kathleen Zellner to represent him. So let's talk about Stephen Avery, because most of our listeners will probably know Kathleen Zellner because of the Stephen Avery case. And I'm not sure, Amy, have you watched Making of a Murderer and Making of a Murderer Part 2? I'm embarrassed to say I've never watched it in, in its entirety. I've seen bits and pieces. I've read right. the book. So, right. I, you know, I know the case well, but. OK, so Zellner, um, Kathleen Zellner doesn't come in until part two where she is actually handling uh, his appeal. I know a lot of our listeners watch have watched this, but for those of you who may be fuzzy on some of the details or don't know the whole story, I'm just going to give you a brief background on Avery's case. Stephen Avery was wrongfully convicted for a brutal rape, a crime for which he was exonerated with DNA evidence after spending 18 years in prison. Amy, what's the average for exonerees for the time they spend in prison? I don't know that offhand. There's different because uh, some estimates only include DNA exonerees. Some include everyone, okay. but it ranges around 12 years, sometimes as high as 15. But I, I would say 13 if I had to. OK, that's actually what I thought the number was. So good. Yeah. I know, Amy, you know the case. So maybe you could give us a little more background on the wrongful conviction and exoneration. Um, not surprisingly, because we know eyewitness identification errors are the number one factor in wrongful convictions. The victim picked them from a lineup. But what I find the most striking here is he had an alibi. Not only did he have a receipt, he had 18 eyewitnesses who vouched for him. Uh, regardless, he was still convicted of rape and attempted murder. And something else about this case I want to point out is the real perpetrator actually remained free. And he ended up raping more women. And if you look at the pictures, they actually did look alike. Sometimes oh, we see that. They looked yeah. a lot alike. I agree. Thank you for that background. Yeah, I forgot he had 18 eyewitnesses. I mean, it's just you don't think this kind of thing is going to happen. But obviously, our listeners and other people in this area know it does. Just two years after Avery's release, he was arrested for the murder of Teresa Halbach, a young photographer who went missing after her trip to the Avery salvage yard. Um, she had planned to take some photos of a vehicle for Auto Trader magazine. Halbeck's remains, her buried bones, were later found on the Avery property along with her vehicle and other items, and Avery was arrested. In the course of the investigation, police interrogated Avery's nephew, a then 16-year-old Brendan Dassey, who had a low IQ and who would confess during a very questionable interview that he and his uncle raped Teresa before murdering her and burning her body. Have you ever seen the Dassey interviews? Yes, I have. I mean, it's, it is... It's hard to watch. It, it's, it is hard to watch. And I encourage people to watch it because it's hard to watch and because you need to see and you need to see how you feel about this. So Dassey and Avery were both convicted of the murder, but in 2016, Dassey's conviction was overturned. But later, the appellate court restored the conviction and the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear his case, which means that Brendan Dassey is out of legal options. He's done with his appeals process. I mean, there's really not much more that's going to happen for him. I mean, I'm shocked. I was really shocked the Supreme Court actually refused to hear the case. I really, really believed they would. I do think he may have a case similar to Centoya Brown, where he might start gaining a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of footing, a lot of support, people standing behind him, and maybe it'll get the attention and maybe clemency's in his future. Who knows? Yeah, I guess that would be his only... He's out of uh, appeals, but you're right. I, I think there's been heavy, strong interest in his case, a lot of sympathy towards him, and I could see that uh, as an option. So thank you for pointing that out. Okay, Avery has always maintained his innocence, and Zellner said she took on his case because she was troubled by the revelation of certain damning evidence that did not appear during the initial searches of Avery's home 
but was only later discovered by police officers. Same police officers, just so you know, who were part of the civil suit that Avery filed against them for his wrongful conviction. For $36 million. Uh, That's a a strong incentive. Um, You know, they searched his, his, I think it was his trailer, like a mobile, they, they searched his mobile home and initially didn't find Teresa's keys, but then on a second search, when they came back, they find a single key, not her keys, but like a single key. And it was like, hmm. So Zellner said she was watching Making of a Murderer, and she was like, I was a little bit troubled by some of the things that I saw here. And she said that she believed he was innocent. So she took on his case, and she's been making some progress with his case. There's been a little bit of a back and forth. Like, she's gotten some hearings that, you know, he probably wouldn't have gotten without her. But there was a request. So I think she was granted a motion to examine Teresa Halbeck's remains. But then I believe the the remains uh, or the bones, the police turned it over to Teresa's family. So I think the motion is kind of in, I'm not really sure what's happening exactly with that. It's kind of an icky gray area right here. I'm not sure if you it's know very, that. It's very confusing. Right. So, um, she. Confusing. All I can say is that she's still in the appeals process. They still have upcoming hearings. So, I mean, Avery's got a great shot if he's with Kathleen Zellner. Somebody once asked me, what does, in direct appeal, what does Melanie McGuire need? And I'm like, she needs a confession from someone else or Kathleen Zellner to represent her. Because I can't, yep. I can't think of what else. The case, but Kathleen Zellner only represents people she believes are innocent. I, I don't know if she believes that Melanie's innocent. I know that's a great question. I would also like Kathleen, to say for this, I know uh, Kathleen. I did. I reached out. I sent her an email just to see if she would be interested in interviewing. Um, I haven't heard back from her, but I suspect she's busy. She's busy, <laughs> you know, exonerating people left and right. Yeah. Quickly before um, we get to the end here, but I uh, always wondered, what's your opinion of, do you have an opinion of Avery in terms of his innocence or guilt? So the fact that Kathleen Zellner took the case made me believe more strongly in his innocence because I trust her judgment, but I go back and forth. You also, I don't know if you came across the fact that there was like a vial of blood from an earlier case. His blood was on file because he had a prior record even before the wrongful conviction. Yes. And they found that it had been unsealed and punctured. I saw that too. But then they like tested the blood and they couldn't find a preservative. But then someone said it wouldn't necessarily show up. So there's a lot of things that could be shady, but could also be nothing. Also, there was something about the jurors. Like there were two jurors that had relatives that worked for the county in which she had the lawsuit pending. Like one was like a sheriff's father and someone else. And I don't know. I remember that as well. The case is such a rabbit hole. I don't know. And then there was something not long ago where like an inmate confessed to killing Teresa Halbach. Did you hear that one? I it's heard like, that too, but they they didn't th- give it much credibility. You know, usually you can't give those things much credibility. So I go back and forth. I think if I had to say, I would say I think he's innocent because I think corruption exists. And as much as I would hate to believe it could exist at this level, I think it, it could. We've seen yes, yeah. we've seen cases in which it does. And I think when someone's wrongfully convicted, it doesn't look good for the police department and those involved. But on top of that, not only is your reputation harmed, now you have this huge lawsuit pending. Right. I mean, that's, that's motive okay. for me. Yeah, that's a fair opinion. People ask me this all the time about Avery because it's the one yeah. that people... What do you think? So I'm with you. Um, I actually go back and forth all the time, to be honest. I can make a justification on both sides. I believe the entire process is tainted. It's like a dirty trial, a dirty case. Everything is tainted about this. But if I had to go with, like if someone was forcing me to, to make an opinion, I would actually go with guilty. 
And I'm not sure that I have the anything other than just a, a gut feeling at the end. So the reason I also, when I go, I, you know, like I said, I went back and forth a little too, is if he was wrongfully convicted for 18 years, you know, I did some of my research on the effects of those who are wrongfully convicted. Yes. And individuals who are wrongfully convicted, obviously we could talk for hours about what that does to an individual. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't surprise me when exonerees end up committing crimes because of what they're dealing with. Right. But it's rare that they commit a violent crime right. like that. Right. So I don't know. Okay. That's fair. That's fair enough. Hey, you're the expert in this area. Yeah. Um, so uh, Stephen Avery is with Kathleen Zellner. And I would say that, you know, she's going to give him the best shot that he's going to have at, uh, you know, exoneration if that's meant to be. I will just um, sum up with a couple things. She, you look at how many awards and the recognition she's gotten. It's a long list. It makes you feel like shit about yourself. Huh? <laughs> it makes me feel very underaccomplished. She's the only recognized trial attorney to win five multi-million dollar jury trials in under one year. What? Uh, that's correct. One year. And she was kind of blase about it. Like I saw something that she was kind of like, well, everyone was ready to go to trial. I kind of just had to do it. And that's how it happened. She's been named top 10 attorneys, one of America's greatest lawyers, top 100 trial lawyers, person of the year in 2014 by Chicago Lawyer Magazine. Most influential women in the United States, and the list goes on and on. Kathleen Zellner is a rock star. And I hear that she is a lovely person as well. Emily Nestor met her in an airport. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Are you kidding? Can you imagine being a true crime podcaster I and mean, seeing Kathleen Zellner? I mean, I don't want to say this like this, but I would die. I mean, my heart would I, stop. I don't think I could contain yeah. the excitement, but. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, in the end, so usually we get to the end and we do like our opinion. Our opinion here is like, I, I'm sure Zell Kathleen Zellner is inspirational to me. She gives me hope that justice is possible. But even so, it, it's it's so difficult. And it, I think Zellner's got a real tenacity. I mean, she's really special. And I really hope that her work inspires other young attorneys to trailblaze with her. And Kathleen, if you are listening, please call us if you ever come to New York. We'd love to treat you to dinner. Oh, please make our <laughs> dreams come true, Kathleen. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Amy. Thank you, Megan. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include an article by Esquire magazine, a Chicago Tribune article, a Newsweek article, the Dream Killer documentary, and a Los Angeles Times article. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.